You're listening to Teach, Think, Treat, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This podcast is for healthcare professionals and students about teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Whilst our setting is a tertiary paediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. Hi, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as the tutor radiographer in medical imaging at RCH. So here's something that's frustrating. A student comes to you for a clinical placement. It's getting towards the end of the course and they've had some really good feedback in past clinical placements and they feel they've done okay. But when you see them in their work, you realise that something has gone pretty wrong in the past and you wonder to yourself, how on earth did they get this far in their course without being pulled up? So to talk more about scenarios like this, I'm joined today by Dr. Kate Scarf. Kate is a senior lecturer in medical education with the University of Melbourne and has a keen interest in the assessment of medical trainees and has also done a lot of work in the space of failing to fail. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. So, Kate, you've spent a bit of time looking into the issue of failure to fail. First up, can you tell us what this is and why it matters? Yeah, absolutely. So... Failure to fail refers to the situation where an assessor has formed the opinion that a trainee has not met the expectations or the standard required for a particular given assessment situation, but they don't go on to record this. Instead, they pass the student. Grade inflation is often spoken about in um, the same context of failure to fail, so it's a similar related issue. In this case, the assessor is giving a trainee a higher grade or mark than the one that they feel is deserved. So not only have they failed to fail them, they've also given, made them look better than what they are as yeah, well. potentially. <laughs> right. So failure to fail you know, happens for many reasons, as you can no doubt imagine. Public safety is most important reasons why it's important. You know, as training organisations, we're entrusted to train and assess trainees and prepare them for safe, independent practice. So by not identifying underperformance, we ultimately risk patient safety. Mm. I guess the second reason that failure to fail is important is for the trainee themselves. You know, when we don't communicate to them, identify and communicate underperformance, we're denying them the opportunity to develop into the best clinicians that they can be. And, you know, that's setting them up for future problems, potential future problems in their work. Other reasons why failure to fail is important is things related to the training organisation itself. You know, when, when they're not getting the information about where students are struggling or failing, yeah. they don't have that information to make improvements in their own teaching and learning activities. Failure to fail is important for the reputation of the training organisation and the professional as a whole. Yeah, right. Why does it happen? Many reasons. You know, it can be an active decision by the assessor and sometimes even involve the student directly. Lots of cases from history describe situations where students are on scholarships and they need to maintain a certain academic standard. And in that case, it can be quite blatant. A popular example was in the US in the Vietnam era where professors were openly at times raising students' grades, so grade inflating or failing to fail to avoid them being conscripted. And you often see it in movies as well where, you know, a kid's really good at basketball yeah. and then um, he's saying, oh, I can't, I can't fail this. Like, please, professor, you know, please put my grades up because I need to make sure that I get this scholarship or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. A lot of ex- external pressure. 
So, you know, those are examples where it's really blatant. Sometimes it happens because um, assessors just disagree, perhaps with the assessment. They think it's um, irrelevant, unimportant. Perhaps they don't understand it. It wasn't around in their day. So they just tick the box, pass off the trainee, regardless of their level of performance. Aside from those contexts, I'm particularly interested in this, this situation where an assessor is reluctant to communicate their judgment. So they've made a decision that the trainee's level of performance is not what they expected, but they are unable to communicate that either verbally or in writing to the trainee or to other assessors or the training organisation. And there's some really interesting work in the psychology literature about keeping mum about undesirable messages, which is termed the mum effect. (laughs) And I think it's really relevant to the clinical examination context as well. Yeah, look, I think this is the main issue that I'm often confronted with is where the assessor is reluctant and it's almost like it's just easier just to mm. pass them so there's not as much paperwork and, you know, handball it onto the next, the next assessor. Mm. Uh, can, can you say any more about this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the heart, most of us are clinicians first, assessors second, we're all busy, all got things to do. And delivering negative information about performance is a challenge for many people um, and often, you know, not conceptualised as part of your role as well. And, and people, it's not really talked about much. Yeah, I was going to say people don't, often don't want to have to go through that emotional aspect mm. of it. And it can be very emotional. Yeah. yeah. So in my research in my PhD, I came across some work from the University of Georgia back in the 1970s, um, and it really seemed to encapsulate the reluctance to communicate. So their researchers in the Department of Psychology really did a lot of studies around the, the seemingly obvious claim that people don't like sharing bad news with others. And they showed that people instead tend to uh, either delay or avoid giving a message that they expected that the recipient would interpret as negative or they'd distort or sugarcoat the message. And they did this out of concern for either the recipient or themselves or due to the prevailing norms of the organisation that they were working in. And since those initial studies, they've been repeated a lot um, in different contexts, including business and and particularly in the context of uh, large projects, so replicated over the years and in in different geographic settings as well. Is this where things like the feedback sandwich comes into it a little bit, where you get that that little sugar coating where you've Mm. got something really good and then a little bit of Mm. bad, but then finish off with a little bit good. Disguise it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it can even go further to that, that the the meat in the sandwich is actually changed. So, you know, changed from being something that's completely unpalatable into something that's not quite as bad. Yeah, right, yeah. And how is all this relevant to assessments in a health professions education context? Because I would have thought that there is still some level of duty of care, I guess, that's required on the assessor. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes that duty of care does get assessors over the line. But, you know, the whole issue and and reading about these studies and the other works out in the literature, it's certainly failure to fail is bigger and more complicated than I first thought. I mean, it's something that's been going on since the start of time, practically. Yeah. It's not just about, you know, training someone to be an assessor and then giving them the assessment forms and saying, you know, go off and assess people. It's, as you mentioned before, it's very personal, potentially very emotional situation as well. And, you know, where you have an assessor who does feel a reluctance to give negative information, that's a problem. And it's often, you know, can be quite different to their clinical context as well. You know, as a clinician, you might be used to giving negative information, but sometimes there's a gap between giving a trainee negative information. 
difficulty that, you know, an assessor wouldn't have in a clinical context, they do have in an educational context. Where they have to give bad news to a patient mm. as opposed to bad news to a student. Mm, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and do you think that the reluctance could be that they just don't want to feel personally responsible for failing the learner or even that they're worried that they are being too subjective and potentially could even be wrong in their assessment? I think it's it's both and I think it varies on the individual. So certainly not being responsible is, you know, a big part in many cases. I looked particularly at the issue of failure to fail in my clinical discipline of dermatology and certainly not saying that, you know, it's limited to there or that context or, or worse, but I'd done some previous work in the context and showed that, you know, assessors in our college had a, a level of concern with clinical assessments. So through my studies... I showed that there was a relationship between discomfort with the clinical performance assessment process and the self-report of failure to fail. So went on to interview clinical assessors. I came up with two big themes, and it's firstly that assessors view failure in this, this workplace context as being something that's very negative. So they spoke about it being devastating, distressing, you know, a very big deal, something to promote development. And as you said, they also felt a great deal of responsibility for it about whether the situation was reported or not. So some spoke about, you know, it's entirely my decision as to whether I let someone sail through or I cause problems. So they really felt ownership and responsibility for the situation in a lot of cases. And there's also situations where a student or a learner may have something else that's personal that's going on for them and you mm. you may be aware of this in some mm. context and you think if I fail them this is going to tip them over the edge mm. like how do we deal with that mm. absolutely and that's that's another whole you know really difficult scenario and you, you think about different types of problems that learners face so whether it's related to purely their clinical context which you know can be easier to to fix mm. Requires potentially a lot of work on the part of the assessor, as you say. When when it's related to, or you know that the trainee's got you know personal issues going on, and you don't want to be the one to tip them over, particularly in something that that is at the end of the day quite a subjective assessment. It, it's it's your expertise, but it's not like a standardised case or a formal assessment. Yeah, you, you can understand why people are reluctant to be the one to give that very negative aspect. Yeah, absolutely. So is there anything that can be done to help assessors avoid this failure to fail? Yeah, I think that lots of things are helpful and probably things help in different ways and in different amounts to different people. I think I started this whole research thinking, oh, you know, there's one way we'll find the magic bullet. <laughs> Never going to happen. I don't think that happens. No, <laughs> I don't think there is something. You know, a lot comes back to the purpose of the assessment and the role of the assessor in, in the whole context. So that being to use your clinical skills, knowledge and expertise in um, assessing the training in the workplace mm. and thinking you know, about the ultimate goal. We, we are trying to help someone to develop into the best clinician that they can be so that they're you know, going to have successful independent practice. Keeping that at the forefront, thinking about your obligation to be honest and, and give accurate feedback and just yeah, focusing on the end game that, that the future patients of this trainee are, I guess, part of your obligation and, and that might be helpful to, to some. I often look at it and think to myself, because me coming from an imaging background, when I'm assessing a student uh, in a paediatric context, I think, would I be happy for this person mm. 
to x-ray my own child? Yes. And if the answer is no, yes. then they don't pass. Yes. And it's a simple thing. And, and I've told people that in the, in the past, like my students that in the past, I've said, if, if, you, if I'm not comfortable with you x-raying my child, you're not going to pass this, this particular yeah. assessment. And I think that's fantastic, number one, to put it up front, to say that we are going to have a conversation about your performance and it, it potentially is on the table that it won't be good. I've heard, you know, even the idea of putting a checkbox on, on the, the assessment form at the end, you know, would you be happy with this this person, this trainee um, doing whatever the context is? On uh, you. On your, you or your family. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. 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 That's really good. What about training for the assessors themselves? Yeah, look, absolutely training is important. It's certainly not the only thing. You obviously need to have skill um, and regular training. It's just not a once-off thing in, in how to assess because obviously things change, forms change, um, educational practice over over time changes. It's not just give the training, here's the form, off you go. Yeah. We need time and logistical support to train to assess trainees properly. I you know, appreciate very much how, how difficult that is in the clinical context, but I think we really need to promote and advocate for the important role of assessors if we're, if we're going to do this effectively. And that needs in, institutional support as well. Support's one aspect. I think helping assessors develop a sense of achievement and ownership of their role is important so that they identify themselves as a, an assessor, you know, have that professional identity development and things like developing a community of practice can can help in that so that it's it's not just you on your own. You can get support from from other people, um, emotional support and educational support. Yeah. And you've got somewhere to to go to to talk about potential issues. You obviously need to be mindful and, and respectful of privacy issues, but you know, just having someone else to talk to debrief with. I think that's hugely important as well. It would probably make an assessment much less subjective if you had a second person mm. assisting there, wouldn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Having someone to share the load with, um, having someone to, to talk about the assessment and just running things by somebody else can be, can be really helpful. Assessment is moving now to a, a more collaborative and more a, a, a group decision, so moving away from a you know, a single assessor giving a, a final assessment at the time or shortly after the assessment through to let's leave it, let's let's have a committee discussion or a group discussion about this and defer the final uh, result of that assessment to later down the track a bit. And you, you often hear some students in the past who have said, you know, oh, you know, such and such, you know, they failed me, but I think they just disliked me. Mm. They just hated me. Mm. Um and look, I can imagine it will also be relatively easy to follow the assessment criteria, but what about these assessments? Does, does the assessments themselves play a role in the failure to fail? So, for example, are some of the assessment criteria perhaps not as robust as they could be and are they too subjective? Potentially. I think we just really need to make sure that the assessments are achieving what we want to as well and, and try and always marry that up to the curriculum and the stage of training that a trainee's at so that you can say, you know, I've got this level trainee, I know that this is the curriculum, what they've been taught, what the level that they should be at, so that there's a real alignment across the assessment form and, and where that breaks down, yeah, it, it makes it all too complicated and, and I think failure to fail is is one result that happens certainly in that situation. Yeah, right. 
Thanks a lot, Kate. This is an absolutely fascinating area of clinical education. Do you have any final words for those assessors out there who should be failing? I think that assessing trainees certainly is challenging, but it's also incredibly important, obviously, to the future career of, of all the health professions. And it's also really rewarding, potentially. So my advice would be, you know, seek out others who are assessing as well. That's to ensure that your own practice is up to standard and to have support where you need it. Also, just think as well that sometimes we get into the situation in practice where you're kind of roll into or or almost forced um, or expected to be an assessor. And I just don't think everyone is really in a position in their career to do that. Yeah. You know, they may may be down the track, but they may not be at the moment. So if it's not for you, if you if you are a person that finds it just too difficult to give feedback to trainees, you know, perhaps look for a different area where you can contribute to education at the moment and and you know, maybe you can come back to it in a few years time. But just, yeah, if, if it's causing discomfort for your own well-being and for, for not giving the information that trainees need, you might be better to step away from it. Good point. Thanks again, Kate, for sharing this information with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thanks for listening to Teach, Think, Treat, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Conversation with the Experts where professionals from the Melbourne Children's Campus provide advice and insights, tips and tricks, and discuss latest research findings on a range of topics.